Say you were out on the beach early one morning, and you looked out into the water and saw it teeming with fish swimming towards the shore. It's one of those things that you have to see it to really understand. It's unbelievable. You go to the bay every day and you, you see minnows swimming around and some small fish, but when they all start rushing to shore, it's just unbelievable. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a story about a phenomenon so bizarre, it seems like it should be fiction. An abundance of sea creatures throwing themselves towards the shore. Fish so thick you can practically grab them out of the water. This actually happens in one very specific part of the South, on one side of Alabama's Mobile Bay. A jubilee is a very local phenomenon. If you spend really much time at all in Mobile Bay or around coastal Alabama, you're going to hear about the jubilees because everyone's looking for them in the summers. There's a bar in Fairhope that has a jubilee watch, and they put it up on the board if conditions are favorable for jubilees. People can't imagine you talking about going down and getting 30 flounders that are sitting on the beach waiting for you. Nobody can imagine that thought. You know, it just doesn't happen. Chapter 1. The Science. How Jubilees are a product of this specific place. If you would just look at Mobile Bay, it looks like any other estuary. And, and it's a lot like the Chesapeake or other coastal Gulf Coast estuaries where you have salt water and freshwater coming together. I'm Renee Collini. And I work for the Dauphin Island Sea Lab and the Mobile Bay National Estuary Program as the science coordinator. The difference in Mobile Bay is that we've got some high bluffs along the eastern shore, and it helps protect that side from wind, and that's why you get the Jubilees. My name is Mike Dardot, and I'm a retired, semi-retired marine scientist from the Dauphin Island Sea Lab. For a Jubilee, I like to kind of compare it to to making a cake or something like that, where you have to have a specific number of ingredients and you have to mix those ingredients together in a certain order. And if you don't do it in the right order, then the Jubilee just doesn't happen. So to get a Jubilee, you have to have this perfect balance of physical things happening, of the weather and the water, and it's a very delicate balance and it starts with the time of year. It's always in the summer. It's usually after rain. It's with an east wind when the bay is calm. East wind, calm, and it's got to be hot. The Jubilee comes about when it's hot because the metabolism of organisms is always increased when the temperature's increased, which means that they consume more oxygen. So to get a Jubilee, to get this perfect balance of weather and water conditions. You actually start not in Mobile Bay, but in the watershed. And in the watershed, which for Mobile Bay covers Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi, lots of things get into the water. Fertilizer, dead sticks, trees, leaves, etc. And it gets brought into Mobile Bay. And then that stuff ends up on the bottom of Mobile Bay. And lots of bacteria and organisms start to eat it. And when the bacteria are breaking these different leaves down, then they're eating up oxygen. Once you get all that stuff in the bay, it's usually summertime, so it's nice and hot. Uh, Generally, 
June to September in this part of the country, you get those kind of temperatures. Which means everything's doing it even faster, and there's even more oxygen consumption going on. And then it becomes further into summer, and the winds are dying down, and it's still which means that the fresh water coming from the rivers into the bay sits on top of the heavy salt water coming in from the Gulf of Mexico. And when that salt water and fresh water meets, generally the fresh water is lighter than the salt water, and so it rides up on top of the salt water, creating a two-layer system. And if the wind doesn't mix those two layers up, then it stays as separate layers. And so now you have this bottom layer of water where oxygen's being eaten up at rapid rates and faster and faster rates, but you have no way of getting new oxygen to it. And so you have this layer of water that's stuck on the bottom that no oxygen is in. And then it becomes nighttime. And at night, they switch over to respiration, just like you and I would do, and then they're breathing in oxygen and giving up carbon dioxide. As the bacteria are using the oxygen, as the fish are using up the oxygen, and less and less of it can get back in, they start to struggle. The fish start to struggle. And it's just like you were to close in a room and not allow any circulation in there. Eventually, if you had people in that room, they'd breathe all the oxygen out, and that's what's happening to, to the organisms. So the fish at that point need to find another place to go. They need to not be in the water that has low oxygen. What a jubilee is, is a mass of water on the bottom of the bay that has low oxygen, and it's essentially chasing all of these flounder and eels and crabs towards shore and they're frantically looking for more oxygenated places and this low oxygen water is sort of chasing them. So generally this is going to be very early in the morning right before dawn. The other thing that that is most likely happening then is that you've got an incoming tide, and that'll kind of keep the whole process focused and ongoing as that pool of water heads toward the shore, and it's pushing these shrimp and crabs and the flounder onto the shoreline. Chapter 2, Clues of the Coming Jubilee, i.e., what to look for. So what would happen first is you would be out wandering on the beach at 3 in the morning, and you would be very hot. We would see fish all over the top of the water. We would see crabs on top of the water. We call that jubileish. It's getting jubileish. It was a lot of fun to go looking for jubilees as a kid. If people come and camp out all night and say, it's going to be a jubilee tonight, that evening they can tell by the east wind. And they'll go ahead and camp out down on the beach, get their blankets and stuff. There's several of us down here that during the summertime we get out at night and we roam this beach. We get out here at dark, and we don't leave the daylight next morning. Stay all night long. We'd watch the shores. We would spend the night on the wharfs. Right here, just go up down the seawall looking, and up and down the beach. If you saw a lot of lights on the beach, you know that there are a lot of people out there jubileeing. And so we would look for that, and we would just, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and shine the flashlight in the water and just look for jubilees. When I got older, we'd take the boat out in the bay, and we would sit out in the bay and look for flounder lights. And when you'd see the floundering lights, then you'd go in that direction. Usually it was a jubilee that went with it. 
but that was the only time back then that you could keep a date out past midnight. But you better come home with flounder or else you're in trouble. <laughs> you get real excited. Your adrenaline is just going and you get in this frenzy. Actually, they had uh, a big bell they rang years and years ago. Used to, you know, before air conditioning, you slept with all your windows open and you would hear way down the beach, Jubilee, Jubilee. The greatest invention was these cell phones. <laughs> and everybody's on the list. Everybody's on the list. Nowadays with the, you know, cell phones, you know, inside air conditioning, people don't sleep on their wharves. You know, you call somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning saying there's a Jubilee, and you go, what, what? Chapter 3, An Abundance Arrives. Here comes the seafood. What you're looking for, the best evidence of a jubilee's gonna happen is when you start seeing small flounders and eels. When you see the eels coming in, you know jubilee's fixing to happen right behind it. And lo and behold, dun da da dun, there it be. What starts at first is you'll notice a lot of fish in distress, sort of coming to the surface, gulping. It starts out with, I think, typically flounder and eels. and They'll be on top of the water. They'll be on top of the water here. And you would be hearing the sounds of the fish coming up and the noises they make when they're gasping. And uh, you would just sleepily shine that flashlight in the water and there'd be thousands and thousands of fish there uh, ready to be gathered. They're all different. They're all different, and there's no two jubilees the same. You would get a swirl of little fish, and that's what you'd see. Eels, flukes, catfish, just thousands and thousands of little fish. There come the crabs floating on top of the water. The crabs are kind of pile up out of the water, but there would be all the big fish there under the bottom. But first thing you'd see is all the little fish. They're like drugged fish. I mean, they're, they're real slow to move. The fish are definitely not as active as they are normally when they have plenty of oxygen. They're slower, their escape attempts are not as vigorous. And then when it gets in strong, you can walk up and pick them up with your hand. I think it would probably be scary. I think, yeah, people would think it was a, a fish kill or something gone terribly wrong. Uh-huh, it was very creepy. All the fish comes right up to you. <laughs> but uh, there are people everywhere, people walking around, women walking in their nightgowns, bathing suits, shorts, you know, anything you can imagine with gigs in their hands, pulling tubs behind to put the flounder in, and just, you know, you get 15 or 20 flounder for one person in, in a couple of hours. My understanding is they can be so dense that it feels like you could just walk on the flounders across the water. Some of them would just chase everything, and you couldn't hardly walk in the water. There was so much there. In a bigger jubilee, the pictures that I've seen show an enormous amount of fish, truckloads. Hundreds of flounders and stingarees coming up on the beach, eels, different things. They can't hardly move around. People throwing nets, people all up on the beach gigging flounder. It's just solid fish. You can't see the bottom. Solid, swirling fish. They're not stagnant, I mean, they're, they're not dead. The fish, while they're stressed, are not dying, and that's the beauty of the Jubilees right now, is that because these are such short-term events, the fish can sustain or exist in this low oxygen condition for a few hours, and that's typically as long as they last as a few hours. And the way Jubilees are right now, they don't typically cause fish kills, with the exception being, you know, what we catch and gleefully eat. Chapter 4, 
everyone gets some fish. How a Jubilee translates in the kitchen. We had big fish fries constantly. We knew how to fix big pots of crabs. We had big chest freezers where we just put crabs in there alive. So we knew how to fix Jubilee food. We knew how to do that. I just eat boiled shrimp and fried shrimp, fried flounder, stuffed flounder. The big pile of seafood was uh, our lifestyle. We'd have fish fries. You'd have uh, neighbors around, friends around, do fish fries after Jubilee, and everybody would eat and enjoy it. And it was just, just a great time. I never caught that much, but when I did, I always shared with my friends. And if I had a lot of crabs, now I, I would make, I love boiled crab, boil them and gumbo them and stew them and pick them out and make crab patties and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Chapter 5. Well, not quite everyone gets some fish. How race mattered during a jubilee. Okay, my name is Annie Carter Hall. I lived here uh, almost 50 years or more. My parents worked and we didn't have transportation to get to the beaches. And during that time, certain beaches were closed off to the blacks. We could just go there. See, I lived in Daphne, and I would have to go a great distance to get on the uh, Mobile Bay. And most of down in Daphne area was all homes white lived on the Mobile Bay. So it was no public place there that we would have access to go. You don't have black beaches, cause nobody we never, you know, they just they lived on the Mobile Bay. White people. Mm-hmm. No blacks lived, had never had homes down there. But after, I guess, integration came about, then they found out there was a public area that was open up for everybody to go to since integration. But during that time, I can't hardly remember how they got, the blacks got down there. But I do believe I just can't remember it. Chapter 6. No Jubilee Lasts Forever. How the party ends. If you're on the shore, you know that the Jubilee is stopping because the fish are gone. What ends the Jubilee typically is the sun coming up and the winds kicking up and the tides changing. And at that point, the water mass has moved. The fish don't have to run up on shore to stay out of the low oxygen water. And oftentimes, if the wind kicks up enough, then the the pocket of water that existed with low dissolved oxygen gets completely broken up and resuspended or re-aerated, and then you don't have two masses of water anymore. You just have one, and there's oxygen everywhere, and the fish are much happier. I think there's one other place in China or Japan or somewhere that has jubilees. Ain't but two places in the world has them. I hear people saying, oh, it's the only place in the world except for Tokyo Bay. Oh, it's the only place in the world but down in South America. I've heard rumors that there's a place in Japan, a bay in Japan, where this occurs regularly. I've been unable to find any information on that. So I think this is probably the only area where at least it's well documented that this has been going on for a long time and that it occurs regularly. Chapter 7. What's in a name? And a seafood resurrection? 
I never give it a thought. It's why it's called a jubilee. But I guess I never looked the word up. But I guess it's 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 jubilant. Everything coming together and so much of it. And that's what jubilee is all about. When I was reading about it, uh, the word jubilee, of course, there's a, the royal jubilee, but that doesn't interest me. I'm Blair Hobbs, and I make art. I make collages, acrylic paint, paper, candy wrappers, torn up photographs, glitter, sequins, anything sparkly. I've been doing a series of Alabama Jubilees, and the first one was just simply the angel of, of the sea life. And I had the stingrays, the shrimp, the flounder, the crabs all floating to the surface in sort of a celebration of from ground to heaven. The Jubilee, according to Christianity and Judaism, was a time to set free all of the prisoners, to forgive sins, to throw open the doors to all the churches, to everyone. And that seemed like a celebration too. So I'm trying to mash up those two ideas of the sea life celebration with freedom and um, put that down on canvas. Chapter 8, The Jubilees of the Future, Another Ominous Thing About Climate Change. So we don't have research right now that has investigated what could happen with the frequency or the intensity of jubilees because of climate change. The things that most scientists think that are going to happen with climate change are that rainfall is going to be increased, right? It's going to be hotter. We've consistently seen global water temperatures rise, and so that's going to mean less oxygen available and probably more jubilees, but it may mean that the recovery phase is going to be a little bit less as well. So it may push it into that fish kill range. It's a, it's a delicate balance between a fish kill and a not-quite-fish kill. The frequency of jubilees being more often would be really fun if, you know, you were living on the eastern shore and you were getting to do this a lot, but the long-term effects could be really hard on the fishing industry here, on the food webs in the bay. There could be impacts on both recreational and traditional activities of families as well as on the people who commercially sustain themselves on these organisms. Our interviewees for this piece, in order of appearance, were Rusty Goddard, Mike Dardot, Renee Collini, Donnie Barrett, a group of gentlemen fishing on the Fairhope Town Pier, Annie Carter-Hall, and Blair Hobbs. Thanks to Leonita Eng for her help in finding folks to speak with, and to Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik, for all her Jubilee research. So this is Dana's last episode as Gravy's intern, and I just wanted to thank her for all her hard work, which included, by the way, getting thrown out of a mall while trying to record people saying Gravy for the open of our show. Stay tuned, though. Dana will have a story of her own coming up next season. Music for this episode was by David Sheshtai and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. 
and Gravy's managing editor is Sarah Camp Milam. So this is the last episode of this season of Gravy. I'm going to take a little break while we provide you with one rerun and one episode from a guest producer. Just ahead, though, I'm going to give you a taste of what's coming up next season. But first... The Southern Foodways Alliance has long been interested in the stories of Southern fishing communities. We've documented the forgotten coast of Florida and oyster shuckers in Richmond, Virginia. The Saltwater South, which begins in Charleston, is one of our newest oral history projects. It profiles the men and women who make their living working on the waters of the South Carolina Low Country. You'll find all these stories online at southernfoodways.org, along with SFA films about Bayou Labatry's Blessing of the Fleet and oyster farms in South Carolina and Alabama. While you're online watching films and reading stories, why not take a moment to consider buying a membership? It's easy to do online, and membership dollars support all our work, including this podcast. Coming up on the next season of Gravy, fruit explorers in search of the perfect cider apple. Whatever the feeling is, it's probably the exact same of just like finding like King Tut's treasure or something. It's the same for me and finding these lost apple varieties. How some rocket scientists brought the food of their homeland to northern Alabama. Here you are in Huntsville, Alabama, and you're sitting here eating this German food underneath a real Saturn V rocket sort of like the spirit of Werner is kind of hovers over you as you're eating your schnitzel and drinking your Oktoberfest or whatever it is. It's just, I don't, I don't think you can get odder than that. And a landlocked caviar farm. That's all next season on Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.